Well, I was going to have a lot of fun here in just a minute uh, with, uh, with Rob, because you know when you think of something or you can't think of something, but you're no, you know you're supposed to and it bothers you the rest of the day, I was going to play it up like I knew what he was talking about and then, and, then, uh, and then tell him I didn't. But he actually texted me over the last song. He did remember what he was supposed to say. Um, there are no t-shirts this year at VBS, and so he's actually doing fun days. Um, like, I actually didn't see the post. Do you know of any of them? Um, but it's like themed days where they cut different colors and things like that. So look for the post if you're going to be at VBS to see uh, what shirts that you can wear. You don't have to do that, but just an idea. So, all right. Uh, Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland, he wrote about an encounter that he had at, a, at the University of Vermont. He was speaking to a, a dorm of students, and, uh, and after he said some things, one of the students said back, he said, Whatever is true for you is true for you, and whatever is true for me is true for me. If something works for you because you believe it, that's great, but no one should force, <clears throat> no one should force his or her views on other people since everything is relative. As Moreland left, he unplugged the student's stereo and started out the door with it. The student protested, hey, what are you doing? You can't do that. Moreland replied, you're not going to force on me that belief that it's, that it's wrong to steal a stereo, are you? He then went on to, to point out that the student, when it's, uh, to the student that when it's convenient, people say they don't care about morality or cheating on exams, uh, but they become moral absolutists in a hurry when someone steals their things or, or violates their rights. That's called selective moral relativists. A, a few weeks later, this student became a follower of Christ because he recognized the connection uh, made between God and human dignity and human rights, that God made us in His image. So Moreland calls this this evangelistic model stealing stereos for Jesus. We, we should try it. We should go just go steal stuff for Jesus. No, we, we we shouldn't do that. This morning we're going to talk about the reason for the rules. Uh, the reason for the rules. Um, it seems obvious, but it's not. I don't think it'll be what you expect. It's not what I thought. Um, I think a lot of people grew, grew up hearing the Ten Commandments and other rules from the Bible, and you, we have uh, this thing in our mind that we're just, you have to follow them, and then God will accept you. There's this idea that, that if you're good, then God will accept you. Um, from the story I shared, the, the real challenge is to, to know what is good. Even, even reading the Ten Commandments, even reading the rules in the Bible, which ones do you still have to follow? Uh, which ones do you not have to follow anymore because of, of the, the old covenant, new covenant thing? Um, uh, how do we follow them? So one person might look at a rule and say you're supposed to do it one way and someone else a different way. They're really hard to define and stick to. So does following the rules define goodness? Not exactly, but there still is a purpose of the rules. We're actually going to spend four weeks in the Ten Commandments uh, for, for a big reason, and, and you're going to notice today, very quickly, that we're not just going to go through the list, but we're going to look at the, the reason behind the commandments. Um, there, I, I, I want to consider a, a different concept with the rules this morning. I, I need to ask two questions first. How, how do you make friends? How do you make friends? When you meet someone and, and uh, friendship's formed, how do you get from, uh, I don't really know you, to, hey, we're, we're really good friends now? Okay, that's first question. Just think about that. 
Now, um, a second question. Let's say you're a teacher or a supervisor or a coach. How do you get your students or employees or athletes to respect you? Now, think about the similarities and the differences. They're both relationships, but would anyone start out by setting the ground rules first? Well, a teacher might. You get a syllabus. A coach might. Um, you, you know, you get, you get the rules on the first day, the first practice. Um, a supervisor might. Here's the expectations. Here's your contract. Here's your job description. But what about someone who wants a personal relationship with you? What, what if someone said, hey, I'd, re I'd really like to be your friend. Now, hey, actually, hold on a second. I want to be your friend. Here are the rules to be my friend. Wouldn't that be really odd? I think most people put God in the category more of the, the teacher or the supervisor, uh, the, the boss. Hey, here, I know you, 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 know, you want to you worship me. You want my blessing. You want me to take care of you. Here are the rules. Follow these rules first. That's, I feel like maybe that's what happens. I felt that way as a kid. If I just follow the rules enough, and if I mess up, then of course I need, to, um, I need to apologize, I need to confess my sins, and then God will accept me. I think we get that this, this, uh, in our minds very early, well, this idea that if we would just follow the list of rules, then, then God will accept us. Uh, maybe we wouldn't even say that. Maybe you know the gospel enough to know that that's not the case, but we still might live this way. I think a lot of people do. Do you think there are certain things that you have to do to be accepted by God? certain rules that you have to follow. Christian or not, I think so many people believe that they have to earn God's love. A Christian might even assume that they have to work to keep God's love. I think it's a big problem. Guilt is, is the, the word that we would call this, that there are these rules in place, and if I don't follow them, then I feel really guilty, and so I'm going to just go back and I'm going to apologize, and it's just going to be this never-ending cycle, um, and it's going to drive us away from God. Because what happens when when you, when you mess up, when you break a rule, um, whether it's maybe a kid and you break uh, one of your parents' rules, or, or you mess up uh, at work, what do, you try to, what do you do when you break the rule? I think at least initially, we hide. We stay away. If I, if I mess up and my wife's going to be really mad at me, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid my wife for a while right? If a, if a kid breaks something or breaks the rule and they know my parents are going to be so mad, they're going to avoid their parents. Ad adults, same thing. We mess up. We just try to stay away from the person that we wronged. Maybe, maybe ends up having a broken relationship for a long, long time. We probably do that with God, too. I mess up. He doesn't want to talk to me. He doesn't want to hear from me. So we stay away from him. We avoid the one in charge. We try not to get caught. Why would God give us rules that would drive us away from him? What would be the point of that? Why would God say, I've created you, I want you to be with me, you messed up, I'm going to try to make a way to bring you back. Here, hey, just follow these rules. If you can do that, then, then we're good. The covenant came first. God's, God's laws, God's rules are not conditions of a relationship. They are confirmation of a relationship. He gave us the rules for a different reason. When it goes back to the Ten Commandments, I, I think, for most of us, we've, we've given the Ten Commandments, I think, more emphasis in the church than, than the gospel itself. Uh, when we grow up, we, we make sure you need to learn these, these commandments, but then what's, what's the gospel? What's the good news of Jesus? Sometimes I think we, we put too much emphasis on the rules. I, I would say that even more non-Christians, people who don't know much about the church, know at least of the Ten Commandments. Probably aren't going to be able to name all ten, but, but at least some. 
think this is, this is dangerous to give the rules out, to, to make a big deal about something before what actually should matter would come first. We get this idea that to be a good Christian, you just have to follow the Ten Commandments, yet I would guess that 90% of the people couldn't name all ten. I mean, maybe some people can. You're really good at memorizing Scripture and rules, and in Sunday school is pushed over and over, and so maybe you get them. But I, I think a lot of people probably couldn't name all ten, yet we say, well, if I, I have to follow these to have this relationship with God, and so I don't really know them or I don't understand them anyway, but I want this relationship, and I don't think I'm doing good, but I'm not really sure because I don't know it, so I, I feel terrible because I'm sure I messed up because I just mess up everything, and so I'm just going to kind of back off. I think the rules drive people away from God. I don't think we need to memorize them. I don't think we need to know all ten. I, I think they're very valuable and important, but not what they've been made to be. But we get this feeling that if we don't get it right, God won't love us. I want to correct that today. That's the whole goal. We're, we're going to be going through the Ten Commandments, but we're actually not going to look at a single commandment today. That's, that's starting next week. So what's really the point of the rules? You can tell a lot about a person by the rules he or she makes, and you can tell a lot about a relationship by who gives the rules to who. For God to give the rules to His people, there was a reason. But what do the rules say about Him? Like uh, when you start school or you start a new year, you get a syllabus, day one, you get the expectations and you get the rules. You actually get to learn a lot about the teacher uh, that, that, uh, that, that uh, gives you the rules. You get to know what you're working with. You might have a teacher who ca they can't really concentrate um, when there's a lot of extra noise, so they would have a rule of no talking. You might have another that is very clean, doesn't want a messy classroom, so they would say no food or candy or gum in the classroom. I mean, think about the, the rules that your parents had for you. I mean, you actually get to know your parents based off of the rules they gave you. Uh, you, you learn about yourself by the rules that you give your kids, what matters to you, what's, what's important, what's valuable. What do you learn about that person because of the rules? A lot, really. Whoever does the dishes might have a rule that you have to scrape the plates clean uh, before you put them in the sink. Why? Because, well, they don't want to do it probably, right? Uh, whoever takes care of the finances. Well, when you leave a room, you need to turn the lights off because they see the Amarin bill every month, right? What matters to that person is, is expressed through the rules. And so as we learn about God's rules, uh, both the, in, uh, the individual rules and also the order that God gave them, we're actually going to learn a lot about His character and what's important to Him. So I want to check it out in just a minute here, but I need to give a little background information first. So this is in the book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. It's the second book of the Bible. And this is, this is pretty basic, but I want to make sure because, again, if we don't have the context, the rules really don't mean anything. So a guy named Jacob, he moved his family to Egypt at the beginning of the story. And, and his family kept growing. Uh, that, that's natural. Uh, the book is about a group of people called the Israelites because God, God renamed Jacob Israel. So that's where Israel came from. And so they were leaving Egypt. And the Egyptians were scared that, uh, that they would take over, and so they made them slaves. Now, the Israelites were in slavery for 400 years. Does anybody know how long the United States has been a country? I wrote it down. I, had to look, I looked at I did the math, and then I wrote it down. Does anybody, can anyone do that math real quick? How long has the United States been a country? 
I know what year is it. It's like 2023. <laughs> yeah, close to two, 246 years. Next month will be 247 years. It seems like the country's been around a long time. Everything most of us have ever known is the United States existing, and, and our parents and our grandparents and great-grandparents goes back a long ways. The Israelites were in slavery for 400 years. So everything that they knew, their parents and their grandparents, and their, as far back as they could possibly know, these, these people who, at the end of the 400 years, all they ever were were slaves. All they were, they were objects. That's all they knew. For 400 years, they didn't hear anything from God. But then all of a sudden, God shows up and tells this guy named Moses that it's time for the Israelites to be free. I mean, would you really believe that? That's all they've ever known, and now we're just going to be free all of a sudden? and you're going to help us? Why? I mean, the, think about how a slave would feel about themselves, how uh, demoralizing that would be. Just, uh, I mean, you, you, why, would, why would God want me to be free? And he, and he helps Moses convince Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, to let his people go. And God, to, God told them then to make food, to make a meal. What a weird first rule. I haven't, I haven't talked to you for a long time, but I, need, I want you to make some food. And then put blood on your doorways. That's even more weird. But God did the rest. Through, through plagues and the final plague of the firstborn, God was, was telling the people that he wanted, them to, he wanted to be their rescuer, but they would have to trust him. And that's really important because as we come up to the rules, we have to remember that it was about them trusting him. That's what it all stem, stems back or goes back to. And so now after all that, we're going to jump ahead. Chapter 20, here's how the chapter begins. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. For any rules, first, the most importance, verse 1, and God spoke all these words. These rules are from God. That has, they have to know. Remember, you're going to learn about who God is based off of these rules and, what, and how he feels about his people. So this is the beginning, right before the, the list of the Ten Commandments, and then the list runs from verses 3 to 17. And so now I want to break down what's really going on here, specifically verse 2. Um, the beginning of verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God. He, he established the relationship, all right? This is, this is who I am. I am your God. This matters a lot. Before giving the rules, he wanted them to know where they're coming from. At, at one time, uh, there were no laws about child safety seats and seat belts. Uh, this was a, a major factor in the death of many young children in car accidents. Today, laws prohibit children from riding in a car without a child seat facing the right direction and properly installed. E even every, a new parent leaving the hospital, they make sure that you've got a car seat and it's installed properly uh, when you leave the hospital. A, a parent's love for their own child is huge. I, I think any parent would agree with that, and a kid would agree with that, as uh, with your parents. You know, parents love their kids a lot. Yet, when a child's safety is at stake, a parent's love is not enough. Love wasn't enough. Parents did not always do what was best for the children. Many parents needed a law or a boundary, even though they really loved their children. See, God knows that feelings uh, are not enough. Emotions are not enough. We actually need laws and boundaries in the form of commands to help us in receiving love from God, in loving Him, and in loving other people. And so he starts out with a relationship first so that they know 
This is a God who cares. Now, a reminder. Second, he says, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, I've already explained what happened, but sometimes a reminder is necessary. Can't it be so frustrating sometimes when someone, someone who you love, um, maybe you upset them in some way and they say, oh, um, you, don't, you don't even love me anymore. You don't really care about me. I would guess a kid would say that to a parent. And I, I mean, you would know, obviously that's not true. And they might even know it, but they just say it anyway. God knew that before the, the next part came, they needed to remember his love and faithfulness. They have to look back and say, this is what you've done for me so far. So even though I don't understand this one, this one thing, maybe I don't really like these rules, they're here because this loving God is telling them, this is what's best for you. This is where trust or lack of is, is made, looking back to the past. That's what we do with all of our relationships. Who do I, who do I trust? Well, who has wronged me or who, who has, has proved uh, to be untrustworthy. It doesn't mean we can't forgive, but, but we know how this is. Our closest friends are the people we trust the most. The people we have the closest relationships are people that we trust. So, can they trust God? Well, he says, hey, here's where you could see that you trust, that you can trust me. I led you out of Egypt, out of slavery for 400 years. And then it gets to the rules, and we're not going to do that today. That's next week, the next three weeks. I was thinking about rules, and I um, I'd remember this guy, but I couldn't remember the story, so I had to look it up. But Bill Clem, it was a baseball umpire. He was the first to use arm signals uh, in, in a game, uh, which makes a lot of sense. It's easy to tell what's going on. But he worked behind the plate. He umped for 37 years, 18 World Series. On one such occasion, he, he crouched, and he was uh, ready behind the plate, and the pitcher threw the ball, and the batter didn't swing. And just for an instant, Bill said nothing. The batter turned and said, okay, so what was it, a ball or a strike? Bill responded, Sonny, it ain't nothing till I call it. I just, I just like, I, could you imagine, like, you're, hey, do your job, what is it? Nope, he's the one in charge. And this is where it gets fun. We don't get to decide if the rules are good or not. We don't get to pick and say, well, these are the ones that I like, and I like these seven, but these three, yeah, I'm out on those. They're set by God. And, and like them or not, we have to follow them, not to save ourselves, but because we've accepted this covenant with Him. He's in charge. When Israel entered into this relationship with God, they accepted this. It's called a theocracy. God would be in control, and they would willingly submit to Him even when it didn't make sense. And a lot of times it didn't make sense. And in our lives, a lot of times it might feel like it doesn't make sense because it doesn't make me happy, or I don't see how it will improve my life, or improve the quality of the lives of others. But do we trust them or not? The rules would help Israel, this group of people, to live in a way to be blessed by God and used by Him as representatives for the rest of the world. Doesn't that sound familiar? Don't we want God's blessing? Don't we want to, to share the gospel with the rest of the world? I think we might have looked at this list the wrong, uh, the wrong way our entire lives of, okay, here's the checklist, and if I follow it, then I'm, I'm in, and if I don't, then I'm out. It's not how it works. The covenant, the relationship was given before the rules. The New Testament teaches us that the law, which includes the Ten Commandments, was good and perfect and holy. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. So we don't become good by following it, but we actually realize how bad we are when we break it. We can't follow it. We can't be perfect. 
but it also teaches that the, that the law would point to Jesus. Romans 3, 21 and 22, the next two verses. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. It points to it. This righteousness, or being right with God, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The law, the law came up short in, in terms of salvation. It was never meant to save us. People just sometimes think that's the case. The rules are timeless. They're really good, but they point to Jesus. They point to a better reflection of who God is. Jesus said he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He even raised the bar. He even made it harder to follow, not just to the letter, but the spirit of the law. Because the law teaches. It really helps us. When we look at this list the next couple weeks, we're going to see what really matters to God. We, we, we might just guess, well, I think God would want me to do this, or I think this is important. We get to know what matters to Him, and we get to live to please Him because of what He's done for us, not to save ourselves. Sometimes people think the law holds us back. The rules hold us back. There's a TED Talk, the Paradox, paradox of Choice, it was called, and I, I share this because I think this is important. A secular psychologist, Barry Schwartz, he said this. He, he, he made the claim that many of us live by this unspoken but official dogma. He says, maximize your happiness by maximizing your individual freedom. You'll be happier if you have more freedom. And according to Schwartz, the way to maximize freedom is to maximize choice. More choice, more freedom, more happiness. That's, that's his direction, or what he says we think. Schwartz points to his local supermarket as an example, a place that offers 175 different kinds of salad dressing. That would be overwhelming. I don't see how that would make anyone happy. Even our personal identity, he says, has become a matter of choice. We don't inherit an identity, he says. We get to invent it. We get to reinvent ourselves as often as we like. And that means that every day when you wake up in the morning, you have to decide what kind of person you want to be. Schwartz ended his talk by pointing to a picture of two fish in a fishbowl. He said this, The truth of the matter is that if you shatter the fishbowl, so that everything is possible, you don't have freedom. You have paralysis. If you shatter this fishbowl so that everything is possible, you decrease satisfaction. Everybody needs a fishbowl. The absence of some metaphorical fishbowl is a recipe for misery and, I suspect, disaster. He said the rules are like a fishbowl. No, he didn't. Sorry. He stopped there. I'm saying this. The rules <laughs> are like a fishbowl. They protect us. But they don't make us God's people. When you buy the fish, they're your fish. You put them in the fishbowl, that doesn't make them your fish. They get out of the fishbowl, they're still your fish. If you have a fence and you put a dog in your yard, uh, the, dog does, the fence doesn't make it yours. If that dog gets out of the fence and the neighbor says, hey, your dog's out, you don't say, hey, uh, that's not my dog, it's not in my fence. It doesn't work like that. It's yours because it's yours, because of the relationship, the, the fence, the fishbowl, the rules. They're just there to protect and to make things better. People don't usually come to, to uh, Christianity out of guilt. It doesn't work. They become Christians out of thankfulness for God saving, through, saving them through Jesus. They might tell you they were depressed, they had a breakup, their parents divorced, they were an outcast, they, they were an addict, they felt no hope. There was just no way to move forward. And the message that we have to share is not, well, follow these rules and you'll be saved. The message is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, not a list of rules to be followed, but, but that even with our problems, 
or as, as Romans 5, 8 says, while we were still sinners, God wants us to come to Him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, not after we got everything right, not after we got our lives clean and all right. While we were still sinners, while we were still breaking the rules, Jesus died for us. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at the rules more in depth. We're going to talk about the relationship and why the rules are even there, because they're not to earn God's acceptance, but He does need you to trust Him. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 probably one of the most clear uh, passages to explain this uh, very quickly and easily. It says, for it is by grace, and I want to pause for just a second, grace is a gift of God, an undeserved gift, something that you did not earn, but it was just given to you. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast." The rules never saved us. It's always been what He did and allowing us to respond. We remember the reason every week when we take communion. That's, that's what we're going to do here just in, just in a second. We consider our need to be saved. I, I don't know, when I take communion, I reflect. Where did I mess up this last week? What rules did I break? Where did I fall short? Yet He still willingly died for someone like you, for someone like me, just as I am. The relationship the sacrifice and the proof of God's faithfulness always comes first. Today, we don't, we don't stop and remember a list of rules and, and, and gauge where I was at. We just look to the bread and the juice. We look to the cross. We look to what Jesus did for us. And when God said, I love you, just, just believe in me, just trust in me, place your faith in me, and you'll feel that love. Let's pray. Father, uh, as we... Uh, look all the way back uh, to, um, uh, to when the Ten Commandments were given to the Israelites, the people that you chose to represent you and to uh, give your blessing to. I just, I pray that our hearts and minds are open to what they could mean. Uh, and as we look throughout history and see all the times the, uh, throughout the scriptures that you've been faithful to people who followed you and trusted you, I, I pray f- that you would help us to trust you as well. Uh, as we take communion and we remember what you've done for us uh, through your son, I, I just pray that our hearts would be open to accept it, uh, not to do anything with it right now, um, but for those who are feeling like um, down on themselves or like they're failures, or I just, I just pray that uh, this would be a reminder that while we were still in our sin, that you would still die for us. That's how much you care. So I thank you for that gift. I thank you for your forgiveness that you won't hold our sins against us. And I thank you for uh, these rules uh, that we're, go- we're about to look at uh, to, to know that there is a better way to live, and that you've actually given us the, the fishbowl or the, the fence to help protect us and give us this life. So I thank you for this morning and for this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.